fundraising was seen as something that white people had a skill set around and a knowledge and they could do it. But for people of color, they were the recipients of funds, not the people who raised the money. This is the Untied Knots podcast. I'm Erica Licht. And I'm Nikhil Rogovira. Today we'll be discussing transforming wealth inequity through anti-racist funding. We'll explore how two organizations here in Boston are working to dismantle systems of oppression by providing resources to strengthen local community organizing and social movements led by people of color. Each initiative channels funding to communities of color who have historically been denied access to financial resources. And to learn more, we'll hear from Lucas Turner Owens, fund manager of the Boston Ujima Project, and Carla Nicholson, executive director at the Haymarket People's Fund. Through our conversations with Lucas and Carla, we'll learn more about how they address systemic racism through grant making and community lending, and also how transforming their organizations from the inside out has created real methods for change. These leaders are untying knots of systemic oppression and tying new knots of community solidarity, love, and giving. At the intersection between Haymarket People's Fund and the Boston Ujima Project is a focus on anti-racist funding channels. For Haymarket, it's on financing social movement groups. And for Ujima, it's on supporting businesses that communities dictate they need. Critically, both serve to give governance and power back to Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. But, Nikhil, let's back up a little bit. What's the history of institutional racism here in Boston and Black-led movements for change nationally? This is a great question. Boston has been continuously ranked as one of the most unequal and segregated cities in the United States. Black, Indigenous, and communities of color have had less access to wealth and quality social resources, including education, compared to their peers living in predominantly white neighborhoods. But this is representative of America's history of institutional racism much more broadly. Wealth has been systematically and systemically taken away from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. As ta Coates declares, 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal, 35 years of racist housing policy. Anti-Black racism is particularly pervasive, deeply ingrained, and generationally perpetuated. And these federally backed policies of redlining maps, they were created in the 1930s by the Federal Housing Administration and the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which outlined specifically which neighborhoods in a city were desirable and green and which were red. In the language of these appraisal forms, red-lined communities, quote, had detrimental influences and infiltration, unquote, of Black people and other identity groups. And it goes beyond redlining. Other policies, like the GI Bill passed in 1944, meant to restore wealth to American veterans after World War II. Yet as Ira Katznelson notes, it was as though the GI Bill had been earmarked for white veterans only. Thousands of Black veterans were denied admissions to college, loans for homes and businesses, and inclusion in job training programs. 
These initiatives were funded at the federal level, but directed by local officials with discriminatory control. Additionally, the advent of the 1935 Social Security Act specifically left out domestic and farm workers, who composed 65% of the entire workforce of Black Americans at the time. And more recently, the war on drugs, stop-and-frisk policing, predatory lending, and the 07-08 financial crisis have discriminated against, denied, and drained wealth from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color, creating an ever-widening racial wealth gap. U.S. white supremacy culture has legalized policies to keep wealth and power in the hands of predominantly white people. And also keeps communities segregated. In Boston today, 76% of the 54,000 students enrolled in the public school system are Black or Latinx, in contrast to neighboring towns like Belmont, where just 3% of enrolled students are Black and 85% are white or Asian. This unjust history has also resulted in ongoing economic inequality and massive debt. Did you know the median net family worth for non-immigrant Black American households in Boston is $8? Yes, that's right, $8. But this hasn't always been the case. Wealth in Black communities has also been about thriving. During the Jim Crow era, many Black communities established following migration north from the terror of lynching in the South were separate and flourishing. Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for instance, was one such community where Black people controlled the local burgeoning economy. This community became a specific target, however, for white supremacist violence, including a massacre by firebombs and shooting on May 31, 1921, that lasted for over 18 hours. The Black Panthers and Black Power movement of the 1960s called for Black community solidarity and wealth creation. They sought to keep wealth distributed in the community build up financial power, and provide critical social services being denied to Black people, including free breakfast and education. These groups also faced invasive surveillance by the U.S. FBI. And you know, this history is so important. Haymarket and Ajima are grounded in this longer vision of Black freedom dreams. As author James Baldwin has said, we made the world we're living in, and we have to make it over. And here we are now in 2020, responding to this long history of institutional racism and violence. Today, we'll hear from two remarkable initiatives in Boston that are paving a new way forward. The Haymarket People's Fund, founded in 1974, is a public foundation named after the Haymarket Affair, the 1886 Working People's Event in Chicago, which pioneered movement for the eight-hour workday. Executive Director Carla Nicholson explains a bit more about how they operate. The way Haymarket operates is we raise money from individuals and we disperse that money to grassroots uh, groups across New England that are doing amazing community organizing work. What's phenomenal is that we've always operated that way. Right now, there's a catchphrase, participatory grant making, but at Haymarket, that's what we've always done. So even back in the beginning days when the folks who started Haymarket were learning about philanthropy and how to do all of this, they knew that the people with resources needed to give money, but not be at the table making decisions. 
and those who are activists and community organizers who are directly impacted and who are literally in the trenches doing the work every day need to be the ones that make the funding decisions. And also noteworthy, in 1988, the organization embarked on a deliberate process to undo racism within every aspect of the organization. Later on, we'll hear more from Carla about this process and some of the lessons learned along the way. Additionally, the Boston Ujima Project is creating an equitable, community-developed, and driven economy in the greater Boston area. They also host workshops, lectures, and events for community members on financial and political education. Recently, the organization established the Ujima Fund in 2018 as a democratic investment vehicle to finance small businesses, real estate, and infrastructure projects in Boston's working class, Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color. Fund manager Lucas Turner Owens explains the origin. The origin was sort of, one, how do we solve this problem, which is lack of access to capital in communities of color, a underwriting process that is fundamentally biased and systemically racist. Um, and it was conceived to reflect sort of an anti-racist aim to center the wisdom of communities of color and to treat them as subject matter experts and agents um, rather than just sort of recipients or beneficiaries of an intervention. Both of these organizations' work sits within a much larger context of the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter organizing, and also work, especially in the last decade, to advance racial justice in the field of philanthropy. Groups like the Philanthropic Initiative for Racial Equity, as well as some larger foundations like the Himes Foundation, the Margaret Casey Foundation, as well as Kellogg and Kresge, they've been recently steadily introducing a racial justice lens to their gift giving and ensuring that a root cause analysis of injustice is central, as well as addressing practices of organizational hiring and decision making. Additionally, here in Boston, a long history of community organizing, including organizations such as the Mel King Institute, have long cultivated important momentum for local accountability, which Haymarket and Carla Nicholson have been tied to since its inception. Ujima, Haymarket, and many other organizations committed to anti-racism work here in Boston are intimately connected. Aaron Tanaka, founder of Ujima, participated on Haymarket's funding panel and was the founder of the Boston Workers' Alliance, supporting the re-entry of formerly incarcerated people. Outside of philanthropy, Community Development Financial Institutions, or CDFIs, were created by the U.S. government to offer financing to Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. Started under the Johnson administration in the 1960s and supported by the U.S. Treasury Department, CDFIs receive funding from the U.S. government, companies, and individuals to provide loans at low interest rates. While CDFIs are meant to support low-income communities, few explicitly focus their work on equity and social justice outcomes which limits their ability to break systems of oppression faced by historically marginalized communities. And more recently, given the rise of tech startups, diversity-focused venture capital has sought to empower founders from Black and Latinx communities. In a world where an overwhelming majority of venture capitalists are white male, money flows to the same privileged communities. Diversity-focused venture capital does not represent itself as anti-racist funding, but groups like Harlem Capital Partners and Backstage Capital seek to create new entrepreneurial communities that do not rely on white male funders. 
Now, we've discussed just part of the history of systemic racism in the U.S., but it is worth noting all of the gaps we've not attended to, including critical Latinx, Asian, and other communities of color's history. In addition, there is a larger backdrop. We're sitting on stolen land and genocide. Eric and I are both here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The land on which we sit is a traditional territory of the Massachusetts people and is a place which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange among nations. Heading into our conversation with Carla and Lucas, we were particularly interested to hear how their organizations grappled with the history we have discussed. Carla spoke to the context in which Haymarket was founded. She pointed out for us some of the biggest ways white culture was functioning, despite the quote, good intentions, unquote, of economically just giving. So I'll give just a little bit of context. Haymarket was founded in 1974 by a group of radical young white people with inherited wealth, with notions of redistributing wealth and power. It was wonderful because they were really visionary. They were challenging the status quo, and they wanted to create a model of philanthropy that really upended traditional philanthropy. So by fighting economic inequality, initially in the early years, that was the central principle of Haymarket. Now, Haymarket staff was a collective non-hierarchical group where the whites held unofficial power. So the knowledge of how the finances, the fundraising, relationships with donors, and in essence, higher salaries were what were um, attained by the whites in the organization. Whereas the people of color in the organization were in more administrative or grant-making roles. And so while they had relationships with the grantees, they weren't privy to the inner workings of the organization. So there was a big, distinct um, division between people of color and whites. Now, racism was discussed, but it was difficult to really get a clear understanding of that and how it worked and how white privilege operated within the organization, much less the larger field of philanthropy. As we mentioned earlier, two of the things that make Haymarket unique are that it funds grassroots groups and also that it's an organization that's taken on an actively anti-racist approach to inside-out organizational change. We wanted to hear from Carla on both of these fronts, how the organization approaches its funding and what the process of change has really looked like internally. We were especially interested in how Haymarket ensures people most proximate to the work hold real decision-making power in grant-making. Carla described this process to us. Our general process runs the span of about six months. So late in the year, we do informational sessions, and this year we created a webinar so that groups could learn what we require. We're not trying to have people go through um, an intensive um, process and not be able to get granted. Haymarket has always been the foundation that gave a lot of groups their very first funding, and we still are that organization, and we will give funding um, as long as they are considered grassroots, which has a budget limit in that determination. So all of that to say that by the end of the year, groups submit a proposal, and we have applied the anti-racism principles to our grant-making process. So what happens is 
that body of activists and organizers are called the Regional Funding Panel. And that group is divided into what we call teams. And oftentimes a veteran and someone who's newer to the process are paired together. And so those people will read the same grants. She then went into further detail on the decision-making process. But they write in on a sheet what their responses are, what they think um, in terms of the anti-racism principles. So around constituency, accountability, organizing for systemic change, what the plan is that this group has, um, how they're going to sustain the work, all of those things. Um, how, who they're accountable to, all those things are asked. And these are the same things that the team responds to. And the staff supports the work, but we're not involved in the decision-making. So they run the meeting. Um, they go through a process of determining who will move forward for an interview. And it's the most amazing process. I love observing it um, because I'm glad I don't have to make those grant decisions, but also because it's just phenomenal to watch it unfold because all these decisions are done by consensus decision-making, which is an anti-racism way of of doing decision-making. Both the funding and internal change also go hand in hand. As Carla noted, in order to emphasize which groups they wanted to fund, they also had to rethink who held decision and grant-making power inside the organization. Fundraising was seen, even in a progressive organization like Haymarket, fundraising was seen as something that white people had a skill set around and a knowledge, and they could do it. But for people of color, they were the recipients of funds, not the people who raised the money. And so this particular uh, staff person came in and really changed that point of view. So the naming of it wasn't exactly what was considered the problem. It was the effect of naming it. So initially when racism is named, there's tons of pushback because, you know, it just really unearths so much. And, and it just goes to, it, it's, it runs deep and it goes into the core of what we know and how things operate and history and culture. It just touches on everything. Reading through The Courage to Change, Haymarket's in-print documentation of their journey, as well as speaking with Carla, Nikhil and I realized how critical each step of organizing within the institution had been, both for building a broad base of support and momentum. One key catalyst, as Carla mentioned, was a consultant who had been hired to support the organization and who inadvertently also had an anti-racist pedagogy. In addition, many people of color employees had vocalized the oppression they had experienced within the organization for many years. And several employees had also attended the Undoing Racism workshop offered by the People's Institute, which became and would become a major partner in their work. You come to a point of no return. You know, you can't really go backwards because you can't operate the way you used to. But you're not sure how to really go forward because you've lost people. People have fallen by the wayside. They've said that this is not for them. So how do you move forward? And I think that there was a point where Haymarket realized that if they were going to do this, they had to make a full commitment or there was the potential that the organization may not survive. But it wasn't easy. As she said, everyone needed to figure it out. Even with a lot of folks that had been trained and 
the pushback around the training and stopping the work altogether. And um, oftentimes people that are trying to figure out anti-racism say, oh, we can do it ourselves. And really you need objectivity. You can't do this internally because the people that are within the organization, whether it's management, um, programmatic staff, donors, recipients, grantees, volunteers, everybody's got to figure it out. As the work started, they brought in some outside consultation. We ended up hiring the People's Institute and another group that worked with them very closely named ChangeWorks. And we gave them a five-year contract to do what was called organizational change work. And that was work that looked at every element of how the organization operated and functioned. And so we had to actually go through the ups, the downs, the ins, the outs to come to the point of committing to being on this journey and then realizing that we needed help and we needed outside objective support to do that. And from this outside support, one of the cornerstones of the training from the People's Institute was a shared analysis that was created. The staff, the volunteers and supporters took the People's Institute's Undoing Racism workshop. So at least there was a shared understanding and analysis and a language, because it's very important to be able to talk about racism and how it's working systemically and to have a language that supports that. Given the enormity of this work and that it's not complete, we were keen to hear what the impact has been within the organization. It's not as often that an organization will stop and take the time to look internally. And so in doing that, you're upending and you're turning around everything about how an organization operates. And so that creates the beginning of a very long and expansive journey. So the thought of discussing or engaging an organization and becoming anti-racist really goes against everything that systemically is supposed to occur around how an organization operates. And in order for the organization not to just implode upon itself, a lot of people walked away. You know, you don't want that to happen, but people had to figure out, like, do I stay in this? Do I continue to struggle? Do I go somewhere else where I'm not being pushed in these ways, even with this knowledge? So it splintered a lot of um, the factions within the organization. It also really exposed a lot of things about operational and organizational culture. And there needed to be not just tokenistic leadership of color, but genuine leadership. And that has created an extreme shift in the resources that are given to Haymarket. Because it's one thing to say, okay, we've made this change. It affects everything, our policies, our practices, job descriptions, salaries, our fundraising, our grant making. But those are all words. Where the rubber really hits the road is people resonating with that and still supporting the work. The People's Institute has been integral to this journey. By having a set of principles from the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond that really unpack systemic racism with an amazing analysis, no matter what happens as we go forward and even during the process that we've been on, It holds our feet to the ground. 
So we look at who our constituency is and who we're accountable to, how we're organizing for systemic change. Um, how do you sustain this? You know, that's a very significant piece in it. What's your plan? What's your timeline? How are you moving forward? So the same principles that hold the analysis together are the principles that we daily have to refer back to in order to be accountable to those that we serve. And that's the thing that Carla articulated so beautifully for us is that accountability really can be held in practice, both in pedagogy and in direct implementation. Lucas builds on our discussion with Carla. He began by talking about the origins of Ojima in 2014 and how this led to a participatory group in 2017 centered around the needs of the community. Ujima really started from a learning circle. This was made up of folks who were activists, investors, business owners, community members, folks who worked at advocacy organizations and nonprofits. And they were all asking the question, what would be a catalyst that would create more economic opportunity in neighborhoods in Boston that hadn't seen any of the sort of surges in economic productivity since the Great Recession that other neighborhoods in Boston were seeing? So these are neighborhoods where, you know, the wealth gap was increasing while GDP and, you know, general economic activity in the city of Boston was increasing. The group was looking at all types of models. They were looking at public banks. They were looking at venture capital. They were looking at community loan funds. And then in about 2016, there was a pilot where about 180 folks came together in a large room and said, you know, what could we give to a central pot of money that we could vote on today? to lend out to a number of entrepreneurs that are in our community. The community was able to put up about $10,000 collectively, and then that $10,000 was matched by a few different organizations, LISC, Boston, the Boston Impact Initiative, and a CDFI based in New York called The Working World, but now it's called The Seed Commons. Uh, so with that $20,000, the room of folks voted to allocate uh, three investments to three of the entrepreneurs in the room. Then in 2017, we had our first People's Assembly. This is when we started to build the membership of Ujima. So folks that had come that day were not members yet, but we launched as a member organization in 2017 in September with a People's Assembly where we asked the question, what are the businesses you love? What are the businesses you need? And what are the businesses you want to see replaced? Building on this work, the Ujima Fund took a deep dive into how credit is traditionally thought of to really target roots of oppression. This led the organization to embark on an anti-racist model that empowers people of color who have been historically excluded by bankers and financial institutions. The way we sort of operationalize anti-racism is one, in how we think about social and environmental impact, and two, how we think about our underwriting criteria for the fund. It's been proven that credit scoring and underwriting is systemically not serving and actually shutting out people of color in a whole number of ways. One of those sort of pieces of um, architecture that we're thinking differently about are the five C's of credit. So those would be character, capacity, capital, collateral, conditions. Those are the things that lead bankers to ask questions about someone's credit score, their reliability, the uh, previous exposure they might have to that certain business. And we're thinking differently about all of those. So for character, we think there's a lot of proxies that can let you understand the character of a borrower. So um, one would be, what is the impact of this business? Why did they get into business in the first place? Was it to serve their community? Um, what endorsements do they have from associates and from the community? What previous loan history or entrepreneurship history do they have? For capacity, we're thinking about um, 
you know, what is the debt service coverage ratio from sort of a mechanical standpoint? Can they actually handle this debt? Because we're not doing them any favors to burden them with debt that they can't repay. But also, what's their one to three year history of paying three utility bills of their choice? That's something that doesn't often, I think, ever show up in a FICO score. But it's part of the financial activity for most working class people. Um, so that's a way that the, the system, again, disadvantages those that want to be uh, considered for loans. Another piece under capacity is just, you know, what sort of stability do you have in your life that we can, you know, measure as a commitment or sort of piece of your profile? Uh, and how do you demonstrate that you're really steadfast in your commitment to this this business you're either trying to start or have already started? Um, we're looking at capital, but not just sort of thinking about, you know, what down payment do you have in this business, but just what's, what skin in the game do you have that we can think about as a proxy for how we think about that, a third of those five C's. And on collateral, you know, we had a community conversation actually about this before we launched the fund. And we asked, you know, what's an ethical type of collateral for this fund to take? Should we take people's personal assets, the, the car they use to drive their kids to school or the home that they live in? Uh, and the community voted that we should be using present business assets and then future business assets that they might purchase with our loan. But we should exclude personal assets. Uh, the community also said that we shouldn't look to personal guarantees as a, as a primary source of collateral, that we should accept those if someone wants to give them, but we shouldn't require them. And the final one is just conditions. And that's where us asking, you know, how will this investment change the borrower's financial condition, make them more able to repay us? Will it increase the productivity of the business? Uh, and is it going towards something that will allow the loan to be repaid? I'm getting kind of in the weeds here, but I think this is kind of where the, the difference can be made. If you can structurally adjust the way the underwriting uh, works, I think you can have a large impact in who gets approved for a loan. Often, lending institutions raise funds by accredited investors and financial institutions. For Ojima to ensure that Black, Indigenous, and communities of color are the investors to the fund, the organization created a fundraising process that is inclusive to people who don't necessarily have the resources that traditional investors have. We raise capital by selling what we call notes. So we've designed three different notes that are really designed to reach different audiences. The first note's called the Kujichagalia note. This is designed and exclusively available to Massachusetts residents who are non-accredited investors. So this was important that we design a product that's really for the folks who are gonna to come to our assemblies, be part of Ujima, drive our decision-making. Uh, so the minimum that we set to purchase that note, the minimum dollar amount is $50. So with $50, you can buy a three-year note and be bought into this fund. The maximum amount you can buy at that level is $10,000. Uh, and the return there is 3% per year. There's another note called the Umoja note where the minimum investment is $1,000 and the maximum investment is a quarter of a million dollars. This is where we aim to raise the majority of our capital. This is a note that's available to accredited investors as well as non-accredited investors. Then finally, there's a third note which is designed for foundations specifically. This is a note with a seven-year term, so the longer term length, and a 1.5% return. Ujima's fundraising approach achieves two goals. First, it allows Ujima to make loans at a low interest rate. Second, and more importantly, people in the community become voting members who make the final decision on whether a loan should be provided to a business in their community or not. The community's input is started as soon as a fund management team puts together a due diligence package. We package all that we've learned in the due diligence process into a report. Our membership receives that first report, which we call the Investment Opportunity Report, and they're able to learn more about the business and then ask questions themselves. 
Then there's a final report that we issue, which comes from the investment committee, which is called our investment recommendation report. The community then receives that second report, holds it in their hand along with that first report, and makes a decision on whether or not they want to vote to see this allocation go to that business. We need 51% of our voting members to participate in that vote for us to reach quorum. And of that, the majority need to say, yes, we approve this deal for me to be able to actually move forward with the closing. Lucas then added how Ujima's work then goes beyond just lending. We think about ways that we can support the business. Are there relationships we can bridge for them with anchor institutions in Boston, like large universities, hospitals, faith institutions, so that those institutions could think about shifting their procurement spending to those companies? Because lending is really one half of the coin, but helping the business grow and increase its sales is what will allow it to pay back that loan and also hire new employees. And while Ujima created a democratic investment vehicle, their theory of change is much more. You know, returning a 3% return on a $100 investment is not a wealth building strategy. I don't want to overplay that. Um, But if you participate in Ujima and you vote on what we invest in and you see your money go directly to small businesses that are struggling, you hopefully then will think differently about how you should interact with other institutions in your life, like another bank like a hospital, like a university, and demand more from them because it's been proven that folks in low-income communities tend to feel more shuffled around and pushed through institutions that have historically not treated them with the same level of respect and agency as folks in higher-income communities. So it's it's my really sincere hope that uh, folks that get the opportunity to invest in Ujima and then vote on where our dollars go will feel a greater sense of agency and empowerment in other areas of their lives. Together. Carla and Lucas explained the deliberate approaches taken by Haymarket People's Fund and the Boston Ujima Project to dismantle systems of oppression. The two organizations' work has had a significant impact in getting resources to Black, Indigenous, and communities of color who have been historically excluded and forgotten. While trying to understand the significant impact that both organizations have had in untying knots, we were eager to hear directly from grantees at both organizations. Lucas described a recent anecdote. Uh, I got a phone call from a woman in her 50s, a black woman who lives in Boston proper in Roxbury, um, who was familiar with the grassroots organizing work happening in Roxbury, but was excited about Ujima as this new avenue for her to engage. And she called me to say, you know, I've never invested in a fund. I've never, I didn't, didn't know much about impact investing. And this will be my first time doing something like this. And I'm so thankful that this platform exists. Um, and that to me was the, one of the most meaningful calls I got in the process of, of raising what is now about $2 million into the fund, uh, because it proved that we're, we're giving folks this opportunity to engage in something that's hopefully giving them a sense of greater agency that ripples out beyond their experience in Ujima. Haymarket also showcases their grantee reflections. Through their media materials, we heard directly from Alex Papali of Jericho, Boston, and Carolyn Chu from Asian American Resource Workshop about the significant impact Haymarket has had on their collective organizing, as well as Haymarket's unique focus on supporting small and grassroots initiatives to do transformative work that challenges systemic oppression. Carolyn shared the following. I think it's such a 
testament to our um, New England movement to all come together across sectors, across uh, cities and neighborhoods and states um, and to talk about our work in an intersectional way and to talk about um, the ways in which all of our struggles for justice are really connected and, and how we can fight for our liberation together. I think Haymarket People's Fund is such an important funder for small grassroots organizations. Um, I know for ARW, Haymarket has been such a believer in our work since we were very small uh, through all the ups and downs of running a small movement nonprofit. Um, and Haymarket really believes in the work and believes in centering people of color and women's leadership. Um, and we're so grateful for all the support. As we draw to the end of this podcast, I'm reminded of one thing in particular which both Carla and Lucas shared with us, which stands out. The work is never over. I'll say that sustaining this anti-racist focus is a continuing challenge. You don't miraculously arrive at a point and you don't have to really put a lot of effort into it. It will always require a lot of effort because the field of philanthropy is really like being in the belly of the beast. You know, we... We raise money, we resource it out to the community. We are major gatekeepers. I mean, we swing a gate back and forth determining um, how much money goes out, who gets the money, how much money they get. And so it's very, very significant that we look at how we operate in terms of doing that. We have all said, uh, staff at Ujima have all said that we see this work that we're doing as being the financial arm or financial extension of the grassroots sector. I think in this next chapter of our work, gonna be a focus on helping other communities that wanna stand up a new GEMA fund or a new Boston GEMA project uh, more largely in their neighborhood, uh, an ability for us to enter into that community and share our strategy and curriculum and general approach in a more formal uh, and codified way. I think part of our approach and our success lies in our ability to successfully map the assets in our communities and not just see them as deficient or needing investment and that, that alone, but recognizing the structural inequalities that exist in Boston, the assets that have been overlooked in Boston and the existing players who we want to partner with here. Um, but we do intend to partner with other cities and communities in constructing similar projects, uh, I think in earnest, probably later this year, uh, and certainly 2021. Well, Nikhil, we've covered a lot of ground today, and in some ways the story is only beginning. It's been amazing to really start to get to know two local organizations and the momentum they've generated for making funding shared, collaborative, and equitable. Both are creating real, impactful, important change here in Boston. I couldn't agree more, Erica. What's been so interesting to think about today is how both organizations are working within the system and also transforming its structure. The Haymarket People's Fund and the Boston Ujima Project are challenging the frameworks of traditional philanthropy and lending, while also imagining a new and radical future of equitable redistribution. Completely. And while their models are not cookie cutter transferable, they really do provide a blueprint for how other organizations, both locally and nationally, can reimagine internal structures and external processes. And when we talk about the wealth gap, it's rare that we hear about the history and how specific leaders and collectives are challenging the deeply ingrained ways that nonprofit and community work is done. 
With Haymarket and Ujima, it's been amazing to see new possibilities for anti-racist change, as well as acknowledge the challenges and hurdles that this never-ending work is up against. This is the Untying Knots podcast. Thanks for listening. Untying Knots is a collaboration between Erica Licht and Nikhil Raguvira. It is supported by Dr. Megan Ming-Francis and the Harvard Kennedy School. We'd like to thank Carla Nicholson, Lucas Turner-Owens, Carolyn Chu, Alex Papali, and many other supporters and friends. Music is Beauty Flow by Kevin McLeod.